Freedom doesn't need more cheerleaders shouting partisan slogans. It needs thoughtful, principled disciples of liberty. Deep down, we all know that freedom and liberty matter. This is where we discuss why they matter. It's time to elevate the discussion. Welcome to the never-ending quest for clarity. This is Loving Liberty with Brian Hyde. Hey, welcome to the Loving Liberty program. If you would like to join the conversation this hour, you can do so at 801-331-8113. And I hope you will. I hope you will join us because I got a topic here that I think has great relevance, and that is understanding the world around us. Or maybe maybe I could say it this way. The consequences of not clearly understanding the world around us. Paul Craig Roberts is a regular contributor to LewRockwell.com. And he has an article on there today called We Are Jeopardized by the Creation of False Realities. And he starts out with a quote from George Orwell, which I think is just perfectly appropriate. Orwell says the most effective way to destroy people is to deny and obliterate their own understanding of their history. I mean, it makes sense, right? You detach people from their history. You keep them uh, ignorant of how did we get here? How did we arrive at this place in time? If they don't know, then they're, uh, I think it was Tacitus who talked about people who don't understand history end up uh, being like little children, constantly having to be told by someone else, well, this is how we got here. It's essential to know it for yourself. And Paul Craig Roberts puts it this way. He says, in America today, it's difficult to tell the truth without being accused of a variety of sins and marginalized. So when speaking truth is no longer effective, there is no purpose in speaking it. That's the reason truth to truth tellers are being marginalized. It's a way of shutting down truth, which, of course, makes it easy for the ruling oligarchs to control explanations in order to achieve their agendas. Now, he gets right to the chase here. He says identity politics is hate based. It's no different from Marxist class war. It would be naive to expect any different outcome than Lenin's class war that exterminated many. The lesson of history is that whoever is demonized is dispossessed or killed. It is the human way. When hatred is unleashed, it runs its course. Thinking about his recent columns about the prospect of white genocide, the hatred of white people that has shown its ugly head is usually volcanic. How else to explain the national eruption of hate speech by the media, websites, Democratic Party and universities against President Trump and white people the minute the El Paso shooting was reported? There wasn't any disagreement except Tucker Carlson, and he was sent on vacation for saying that white supremacy is a hoax. White supremacy is a hoax. Why was the hoax created if not to be used to demonize white people? If people, including many whites, were not believers in this hoax, how could Carranza, the Mexican-American who heads the New York City public school system, use the public school system to conduct a campaign against toxic white supremacy culture? Here we have public money to cleanse America of what he calls white toxic culture. So how are white supreme when white values are being cleansed out of the culture? Why is the New York Times committing itself not to better news reporting after the Russiagate fiasco, but to, excuse me, to reframing America as a racist country starting in 1619? To intelligent people, this sounds silly, but to the New York Times, this is real. 
The executive editor of the New York Times sees it as the Times' duty to demonize Americans of British and European descent and to misrepresent them as racists who built a country on slavery. Now, the New York Times executive editor, Dean Beckett, told the Times employees that the Times was shifting its focus from Russiagate to Trump, the racist. Note why Beckett characterizes Trump as a racist. Trump is a racist because the U.S. has immigration laws and it is the duty of the president to enforce the laws of the U.S. If Trump did not enforce the immigration laws, he'd be failing to perform his duty. According to Beckett, Trump is a racist simply because he enforces the immigration laws of the United States. Now, if Beckett doesn't like immigration laws, why doesn't he use the New York Times to lead a campaign to repeal the immigration laws instead of leading a campaign to brand Trump and the American people as racists? If the Democratic Party doesn't like immigration laws, why don't they introduce bills to repeal the laws? Instead of blocking the president from enforcing the laws, if we don't need borders, we don't need a military. Paul Craig Roberts says what the New York Times should be writing about is the creation of hate in America and its own contribution to the creation of racial and gender hate that divides the American people. And then he asks the question, why is the New York Times preaching hate? Why is the New York Times a propagandist for hate preaching identity politics? The ideology of the Democratic Party and the liberal progressive left when it's supposed to be a newspaper. Different peoples can live together peacefully as Jews, Christian and Muslims did in some parts of the Middle East until the Israeli Zionists radicalized the Arabs. When extremists and troublemakers arrive on the scene, everything changes. South African whites and blacks were more or less coexisting under black rule until a second black party appeared and fought for power by advocating more punitive measures against the white population. In the American South, relations between whites and blacks were put on the wrong foot by Reconstruction. For northern fanatics who hated the South, Reconstruction wasn't about restoring infrastructure and food production. It was about reconstructing white people who had been demonized and reconstructing their demonized society. The history of Reconstruction was written by the victors and hides the abuse of Southern people that led to the rise of the KKK as a resistance movement. The North was so intent on punishing the South that the North neglected the harm Reconstruction did to race relations in the South. The Jim Crow laws that segregated the races were passed in the immediate aftermath of Reconstruction and reflected the South's bitterness from Reconstruction. For 12 years, Southerners had experienced life under black rule, supported by the Union Army, and they had experienced humiliations encouraged by vindictive Union officers. Jim Crow laws were the unintended consequences of Reconstruction. Now, I'm going to pause right there for just a moment and ask, have you ever heard such a thing before? I don't think I've ever heard anybody put it that way. And yet, I, it makes perfect sense. I think it's a very solid and truthful example. But I don't think you'd hear many people in so-called polite society talking about that. As time passed, Paul Craig Roberts writes, whites and blacks began building workable relationships. White bitterness had faded. The races were more or less getting along until the holier-than-thou northern liberals arrived preaching hatred in the 1950s and early 1960s and bringing another reconstruction. 
Parents in the South with school children experienced forced school desegregation as a second reconstruction. Suddenly, kids who could walk to school in 10 minutes were being bused for hours into unknown neighborhoods so that black kids could go to school with white kids. The Northern liberals' idea that blacks could only succeed by being associated with whites always sounded very racist to me, says Paul Craig Roberts. Regardless, the result was the destruction of public school education. Homogenous classrooms filled by students of roughly the same motivation and values were replaced with towers of Babel, full of different classes, races, motivations, and values. Standards had to be lowered to accommodate such an uneven mix. Teachers lost control of classrooms. Parent-teacher associations ceased to function as schools became distant from home. This destroyed any cooperation between parents and teachers, and they became enemies instead of allies. Discipline broke down. Police became a fixture in public schools. The many differences in students intensified bullying and fomented racial antagonism. Kids lost free time to long bus rides. Now, he says, when I look at public education today compared to the one I got, there's no resemblance. We were taught to think for ourselves and that a free country required free minds. Today, a free mind is the last thing a public school permits. The northern liberals did not understand or care to understand that southern schools were neighborhood schools. And neighborhoods were segregated not by race, but by economic class. Middle-class kids went to school with middle-class kids. They didn't know rich kids or poor kids. There were some integrated southern schools in poor neighborhoods. Remember the little rascals? There were some integrated southern neighborhoods. In fact, he says he lived in two, the New Orleans French Quarter and Old Town Alexander, Virginia. Segregated water fountains and buses had their origins partly in Jim Crow laws and partly in medical reasons and practical considerations. Infectious diseases were a problem prior to antibiotics. Blacks, being generally poorer, lived in less sanitary conditions. The separation of water fountains was a measure to reduce the transmission of infectious diseases, as were laws prohibiting spitting in the street. Now, these laws might have been medically ineffective, but they reflected beliefs at the time. And he says, by his time, it was simply established practice and no one thought about it. Why is it a privilege for white people to have their own water fountains, but not a privilege for blacks to have their own water fountains? This is some, uh, this is some pretty bold stuff from Paul Craig Roberts. Can you imagine a commentator on any of the major networks talking about something like this? And I'm not saying you have to agree with him. I'm just saying... He's bringing up some ideas and some possibilities here that I think many of the uh, guardians of what we're supposed to think would find verboten. We'll come back to his commentary right after these messages. Hey, welcome back to Loving Liberty. I'm Brian Hyde, sharing with you a very timely, if uh, not uh, provocative, commentary from Paul Craig Roberts, who was a a former assistant uh, secretary of the Treasury under Ronald Reagan's administration. And and he's talking about the the realities. Our reality is is a, a false reality and how it jeopardizes us. And he's talking a little bit here about Jim Crow laws and and what was some of the motivation behind them. Now, mind you, he's not defending them. 
But he's also pointing out that uh, this current narrative, and if you haven't heard the 1619, you know, narrative, well, that's when the United States first planted its flag in the soil of slavery. And that's why this nation was built on slavery. I'm sorry, but that's a load of crap. What drove the people here to the new world was not a desire to have slaves. It was a desire to be free. But under the new narrative, you know, everything that came before us was wicked, racist, superstitious, and wrong. Or so the uh, current guardians of the narrative are telling us. I'm, I was really interested. I, I had wondered, I don't know much about Jim Crow because I didn't live under Jim Crow conditions. But the separation of water fountains, blacks having their own and whites having their own, um, still kind of a weird racist thing to do. But he points out it was based in the idea that infectious diseases could be transmitted. And typically at that time, blacks lived in poorer areas, less sanitary conditions and less less availability or less access, I guess, to to antibiotics. Now, he does point out if infectious diseases were a concern, restaurant and hotel segregation would be explained by the same concerns as water fountains. But he says, keep in mind that today people try to avoid hospitals that are known to be infected with antibiotic resistant bacteria. In fact, he says, I remember when women dreaded car travel because gasoline station toilets were seldom clean. And people believe you could catch VD from a toilet seat. In those days, public transportation was widely used. Ladies did not go downtown to shop. There weren't any shopping centers and few, if any, two car families unless they were properly dressed. He says, I remember my grandmother, hat with veil, white gloves, suit, stockings, high heels. On the same bus would be black workmen who dug ditches for water and sewer lines and did various kinds of work that got them and their clothes dirty. If they were confined to the rear half of the bus because of Jim Crow laws, seating was also separated for practical reasons. The dirt associated with the black workers' jobs came on board with them, and it was often left on the bus seats. In those days, money was scarce. Cleaning bills were high. No lady wanted to go shopping or return home in soiled clothes. He says in Atlanta, the line separating the races on buses was variable. It depended on the number of blacks and whites on the bus. Back of the bus has been giving a meaning that it didn't have. If the bus companies had foresight, they would have reserved the back of the bus for white people. Now, he says, I don't know if the explanations I heard in the 1940s for segregated water fountains and public transportation seating are are a cover or are either are true or just a cover for racism. He says, I know that people believe them. Also, it would seem to be the case that if racism was so endemic, it would be pointless to invent rationals with which rationales rather with which to cover it up. What would be the purpose? He says in those days. Even for the lower middle class, black maids took the place of today's household appliances. He says, our black friend was Carrie. Mother and Carrie worked together. They would take turns at the scrub board on their knees, washing clothes in the bathtub. If mother got a few hours off to go to a housewife's coffee or to a doctor's appointment, Carrie was the boss. We spoke to her precisely as we spoke to our parents, and she ate at the table with us. Every morning, my father gave mother $2 to provide meals for the day. Carrie was more efficient in getting the most out of the money, so mother turned the responsibility over to her. Now, he says, in those days, things were not so expensive. Moreover, it was the practice of doctors in the South to provide free or nominal cost medical care to the poor 
and to overcharge the rich to pay for it. Families that could afford it financially helped maids, who had helped them long-term over the years in their medical care and in old age. Not everybody could do much, but many did something. And he says, I know this sounds like a fairy tale, but he says, I lived it. But he said, all of that changed when the Northern liberals came down preaching hate and stirring up blacks to their oppression. Indeed, the entire South, black and white, was oppressed by Reconstruction, whose destructive economic effects, amplified by the Great Depression, lasted in the South into the 1950s. Now, he says, real history no longer exists in the U.S. The American experience has turned into one of crimes and injustice. There's, there's no doubt, he says, that American foreign policy is responsible for many crimes and much injustice. In fact, he writes about it often. But he said the people used to be unified. They didn't hate one another. Yes, there was some low-life racism against blacks, but the middle and upper-class southern white population disapproved of it. In the South, white families relied on black help. We knew them. White people trusted blacks with their children, their meals, their household budgets. Who would trust their children, food, and household to people that they hated? That's a good question. And his answer is it's because the hatred was manufactured. It serves an agenda. Disunity. And now we have identity politics. Identity politics takes the place of Marxist class war. The struggle is no longer the working class against the capitalist class. The struggle is the oppressed peoples against the white people who allegedly oppress them. Now, this would have seemed strange to Carrie, their maid, but as they say, her consciousness had not yet been properly formed. She was without the benefit of the lectures that she was oppressed and exploited and needed to be angry and hate us and spit in our coffee. He says, if anyone alive is capable of memory, class war exterminated millions of people who were demonized as class enemies. Class war in Russia and China was the real Holocaust. Today, it is white people who are demonized as race enemies by identity politics. And the New York Times intends to institutionalize the demonization of white people in the public school system, according to the New York Times executive editor. He says it's dangerous to write reminiscences of past times when the history has been reconstructed and falsified in order to advance an agenda. His memories of their maid carry neighborhood schools and reasons for segregated water fountains and separation in bus seating are not an apology for segregation. He says, I'm not apologizing for anything. I'm just remembering how things were. He says, when I was at Georgia Tech, I helped to bring a tech student contingent to Atlanta University to work with Julian Bond and Lonnie King to organize Atlanta's first civil rights march. Now, police dogs were not set on the march, and no one called us communists. Atlanta was too sophisticated for that. Restaurants were tired of having to turn away black customers. And he says, at Georgia Tech, we were tired of having to have our few dark-skinned Arab and Indian foreign students wear their turbans and national headdresses so we could get them into segregated movie theaters. Antibiotics existed, so did some two-car families. And shopping centers were beginning to spring up. Public transportation was in decline. Blacks were starting to get middle-class jobs. Segregation was self-unwinding. The last segregationist who ran for mayor for Atlanta, mayor of Atlanta rather, was defeated by the white business community. At this point, Northern Reconstructionists arrived again to poison the relations between the races. So he says, a reader might ask, if white Southerners weren't black-hating racist white supremacists, why did Alabama Sheriff Bull Connor sick dogs on black protesters in 1963? 
And Paul Craig Roberts says, well, we can actually draw up a list of reasons. One, he was a racist who wanted to keep blacks in their place. Two, he was a police officer whose authority was challenged. As you know, the most dangerous thing anyone can do today, regardless of rage, a- race, age, or gender, is challenge the authority of police. Unless you want to risk being tasered, beaten, shot, or arrested. Number three, he regarded the protest as the beginning of a second assault by the North on the South, the beginning of a second reconstruction. Number four, maybe Bull Connor thought he was confronting the dupes of a communist organized plot to undermine America. The country had recently experienced the McCarthy era and the discrediting of the House Committee on Un-American Activities was seen by right-wingers as a communist victory in their plan to take over America. And here in his own domain, anarchy was erupting. Okay, got a little bit more here on this article. We'll get back to it just the other side of this news update. Credible, thoughtful discussion. This is the Loving Liberty Radio Network. Hey, welcome back to Loving Liberty. Brian Hyde at your service today. I'm sharing with you a a pretty provocative article from Paul Craig Roberts about how we are jeopardized by the creation of false realities. And this has some pretty touchy stuff in here because he he takes on identity politics and he takes on this idea that America is the most racist nation ever founded on racism in 1619, blah, blah, blah. But he has some points really worth considering. I'm not going to tell you, boy, he's got this right and you better believe it. I'm just telling you, he has some points worth considering. He says, uh, in fact, he he was going through, as as we went to the break, he was listing off some of the reasons. Why would Alabama Sheriff Bull Connor sick dogs on black protesters in 1963 if white Southerners weren't a bunch of black-hating racist white supremacists? And some of the uh, possible reasons could be that, yeah, he was a racist who wanted to keep blacks in their place. It could have been that he was a police officer whose authority was being challenged or that he regarded the protest as the beginning of a second assault by the North on the South, the beginning of another reconstruction, if you will. It could also be that he thought he was confronting, you know, dupes of a communist organized plot to undermine America. There's also the possibility that Bull Connor wanted to run for higher office and thought that a strong stance against Northern interference would help him in his bid for election. Or it could be that he was just too unsophisticated to understand that blacks had legitimate complaints and had the constitutional protection to express them. Now, listen to this. Paul Craig Roberts says, in fact, all of these factors might have played a role when confronted with protests. The police never know where that protest is going. If the police lose control, they're blamed for the mayhem that results. What's the difference between setting dogs on protesters and shooting protesters with rubber bullets and tear gas canisters? Now, keep in mind, in those days, in Bull Connor's day, police forces were small. They weren't militarized. There were no SWAT teams or tanks or fully armed police with military weapons wearing bulletproof vests and standing behind shields. So he says, perhaps we could add to the above list the possibility that the dogs were used as a supplement to a small force of unprotected police armed only with revolvers or shotguns. He says, topics such as these about which I'm writing are monopolized by people with agendas who want to denounce, not understand. He says, Bull Connor made a mistake, but I don't know why he made the mistake. And he says, I don't know how we can know anything when the overriding motive is to denounce and to demonize. 
Paul Craig Roberts writes, it's entirely possible that segregation had unintended consequences and fomented racism. It would be helpful to know, but he says we're treading on forbidden knowledge. Northern liberals have a penchant for looking down on Southerners as the Northerners mistake their own prejudice as proof of their moral superiority. Today, blacks have the same stake in their victimization as Jews have in theirs. This makes it unlikely that there is any room for accounts that don't support victimization. Fine, we might say, or not say, but what about voting? Blacks didn't get to vote, or they don't get to vote. Well, that ended half a century ago. Atlanta elected a black mayor in 1973 that was 46 years ago, and has had a black-led government ever since. A remarkable feat for people who don't get to vote. But he says, let's assume that blacks didn't or don't get to vote. Why do we think voting matters? What good has voting done the white working class and the white middle class? A rapidly declining majority of the population, but still the majority of the population. Did voting stop their jobs and careers from being offshored to Asia? How come the voting public that wants health care can't get it, but the military security Israeli complex can get all the money in wars it wants? How come the people want more environmental protection, but the existing protection is being dismantled? Trump gets blamed, but the protections are being dismantled by the extractive industries and agribusiness that rule in place of the voters. Voting, in quotation marks, works, but only for the big money interest groups who fund the political campaigns. The vote of the timber, mining, energy lobby, or the vote of the military security complex, or Wall Street, or even the Israeli lobby, exceeds the vote of the entirety of the voting population. When Americans vote, all they can do is provide cover for the powerful interest groups who are ripping them off behind the mask of democracy and voting. How come blacks can change things by voting when whites can't? Nowhere in the Western world does voting work. The British people voted three years ago to leave the European Union, but they're still in with diminishing prospects that the British government will ever abide by the people's vote. He says it's generally assumed that segregation only existed in the South, but in fact, there was segregation in the North and in the federal government. In the years leading up to World War I, the administration of liberal President Woodrow Wilson segregated federal offices and established racially separate lunchrooms and toilet facilities in cabinet departments. The United States military was officially segregated till 1948 and remained segregated to some extent until after the Korean War. The lie that segregation is a uniquely southern institution is one of those whips used against the South by holier-than-thou northern liberals. But he says the North likes to play down its own racism by magnifying racism in the South. Paul Craig Roberts says, What I have learned over the decades that I have spent explaining events as an assistant secretary of the U.S. Treasury, as a professor in the classroom and lecture hall, as an editor and columnist for the Wall Street Journal, Business Week, Scripps Howard News Service, Creator Syndicate, columnist for European newspapers and magazines, and the principal writer for his own website, is that very few want to know. It's too much trouble. And it takes too much time for people to inform themselves. They haven't the stamina to learn that they have been hoodwinked. They prefer to be amused and to have their existing beliefs confirmed. Gossip is more interesting to them than facts. And one consequence is that people have lost the ability to tell the difference between fiction and fact. And this creates a perfect world for governments to be free of control by citizens. Control passes to organized interest groups and oligarchies who control the explanations. 
Truth becomes whatever serves their agenda. Truth is what the insouciant brainwashed population hears on the news. He says in the United States today, indeed throughout the Western world, the best way to destroy yourself is to tell the truth. Look at Julian Assange, at Ed Snowden, at Manning, at CIA whistleblowers. Okay, he's got a point there. So he asks, how does Western civilization recover from this situation? When it is far more advantageous to lie than to tell the truth, when ideological and material agendas are more important than justice, morality, and truth, what becomes of life? Asks Paul Craig Roberts. So I'm just curious. You don't have to answer. This could be a rhetorical question, but 801-331-8113, does it make you uncomfortable? Or did it make you uncomfortable? Some of Paul Craig Roberts' observations about what life was like in segregated America. Again, he's not apologizing for the way it was. He's just describing this is the way it actually was. But if you weren't there yourself, if you hadn't lived that yourself. It's a pretty tough thing to refute when people tell you, well, you know, the South, of course, was the source of all these Jim Crow laws and you know, racism, blah, blah, blah. Here's my hope. I'm going to post this article in the show notes. I hope that you will access it and, and read it for yourself and make up your own mind. I'm not going to tell you, you've got to think this way. I just... I just want to chip away at the idea that the current narrative that this is the most racist country that ever existed, and that's how it was built, was with racism and slavery, may not be a fully developed point of view. It may just be a very narrow, agendized point of view for the purpose of keeping us divided and artificially whipped up and angry at one another. Do you believe there are such people? out there that would actually, you know, try to do this kind of thing, that would foment that kind of activity? I certainly do. But ultimately, it's your mind. You need to be the one to to make up your mind as to, but does this ring true or not? Look, if you can't wait till I get the podcast posted up, you can go to lewrockwell.com, L-E-W-Rockwell.com. Paul Craig Roberts' piece is posted there. We are jeopardized by the creation of false realities. I think it was Caitlin Johnstone. I get her, I get updates from her in my email pretty regularly. And she's the one who I think coined the phrase that whoever controls the narrative controls the world. That's something that has stuck in my mind because there is a whole lot of narrative out there that that is being peddled to us, sometimes through official sources, sometimes through different advocacy groups or different websites. But the bottom line is, If you are not willing to dig in and do some research for yourself, if you are not willing to chase facts for yourself, if you're not willing to dust off original sources for yourself, there's a very good possibility you're going to find yourself misled. And the people who are doing that misleading, the people who are shading the truth, look, they're not coming out with big, bold lies that anybody could, you know, see through in a heartbeat. It's subtle shades of deception, but it's deception nonetheless. And to me, that's, that's where the true evil lies. Well, this looks plausible, and it seems like something that, uh, that would be true. But if it's off by a few degrees, does that matter? 
I guess that depends on whether or not you want to arrive at the destination you think you are traveling to. Just a few degrees difference in an airplane's travel could put you in a very different place than you expected. Hey, welcome back to Loving Liberty. I want to mention that one of our sponsors here on the Loving Liberty Radio Network is Ammo.com. I bet you can't guess what they sell. <laughs> you know, they actually have every kind of ammo you could possibly want or need. From the premium top shelf self-defense ammo down to cheap surplus plinking ammo and everything in between but uh, i'll tell you what it's worth your time to go online buying ammo online has actually become one of the the best and easiest ways to really seek out the bargains ammo.com has everything rifle shotgun rimfire handgun whatever you're looking at they've got it at great prices and they're one of our sponsors so it would mean a lot to me if you would check them out and by the way look at the articles They've got a great little library tab on their website, ammo.com. Check them out. Stock up on physical as well as intellectual ammo. You'll be glad that you did. All right, we're going to finish up the program today talking about heroes, more specifically, the myth of heroism. This is an article by Stephen Davies on the American Institute for Economic Research website, AIER.org. And here, Stephen Davies says, recently the heroic and the hero have become fashionable once again. Movie theaters seem to be showing nothing but film film adaptations of superhero comic books. In popular fiction, genres such as fantasy and science fiction, heroes and conventional heroic narratives are very, very common. Now, the concept of the heroic and the hero is a very old one and may even derive from structural features of the human mind, if Jung was correct. But it can take different forms, however. And this is relevant for the way we think about and understand the modern world and human society. It's particularly important for individualist liberals. And by the way, he is using that in the sense of a classical liberal. Stephen Davies writes, There are a number of work by mythographers and historians of religion, such as Joseph Campbell and Mircea Eliade, that, dis- that examine the commonest conception of the heroic and narratives that it gives rise to and in which it's articulated. And he says, in this account, the essence of the heroic is the performance of deeds and achievements that are beyond the ordinary or mundane. In addition, these deeds are of significant import. They save the world or a nation or cause from disaster or destruction. And they bring some kind of a huge benefit to people in general. Hence the recurring narrative of the culture hero who brings humankind the benefits of things such as fire or grain. The hero, who may be male or female, is a special kind of person with qualities and capacities that are beyond the normal. All this produces the classical hero narrative, which is found in cultures around the world. The hero typically has a mysterious or unusual birth. They do not know who their father is and are brought up unaware of this until a specific point in their life when they become aware of it. They have special abilities and capacities that mark them out from the ordinary. And they have a destiny or purpose that only they can fulfill. When they discover the secret of their parentage and identity, they start upon the fulfillment of that destiny. And he says the account of the hero's life in which they realize their destiny and metaphorically or literally save the world typically involves a number of tropes or narrative devices, such as a quest or a journey, 
a descent into a dark place or the underworld, the slaying of some kind of monster or enemy, and often a war or conflict. The critical point for our purpose, though, is that in these accounts, the hero or heroine is a special person marked or chosen from birth and with a special purpose or destiny that only they can realize. In the absence of this hero, the odd end cannot be realized, and the dark side will triumph. Now, there are variations on this theme, such as the story of the flawed or tragic hero who ultimately fails, or the anti-hero, like Milton's Satan, who has many of the features of the hero in the same kind of story, but is serving the dark cause rather than the good. These share the underlying narrative, however. The narrative can take a number of literary forms, but the commonest is that of the epic. Narratives of this kind are found in all human cultures, hence the belief that they reflect or derive from inescapable aspects of the human experience or from a kind of shared or collective feature of the human mind. At first sight, there's an obvious affinity with individualism, and indeed people do speak of heroic individuals and heroic individualism. In this way of thinking, there are certain people with special qualities who perform or do extraordinary and admirable things. The question, though, is whether such people are different from the common herd, are they unusual, or are they distinctive? Now, Stephen Davies says there's a kind of individualism that would argue, yes, indeed, there are some people in all societies who have special qualities and are somehow better than others. And what is needed to allow those people to find expression for their special abilities, not least because this will bring benefits to everyone. That's the view in Ayn Rand's Atlas Shrugged, for example, where the argument is made that the living standards and life of ordinary people are effectively a gift from the heroic Promethean figures such as Hank Reardon. And this also leads to a view of history that sees it as shaped, at crucial moments at least, by outstanding individuals, whether for good or bad, depending on whether it is a hero or anti-hero who's in the right place at the right time. In economics, it leads to a focus on heroic inventors or entrepreneurs who are often seen retrospectively as having had a destiny. You can see this frequently in the popular biographies of people like Henry Ford, for example. And he says there's enough truth in this for it to have considerable resonance, not least because it works through the deep narrative described above. But he says it's not the only way of thinking. There's a different conception of the heroic that, may, that we may describe as the domestic or bourgeois concept of heroism and the heroic. In this way of thinking, heroism is indeed the performance of extraordinary deeds, but the hero is not thought to be someone exceptional or marked for a unique destiny. Instead, heroism, the performance of the heroic, is something which all are, of which all are potentially capable. The focus, in other words, is on the heroism of ordinary people. And by the way, Larry Reed's book, Larry Reed from the Foundation for Economic Education, his book, Real Heroes, is one that would really drive that point home. Stephen Davies says this leads to a different kind of narrative in which the hero is an ordinary person who, when confronted by a test or challenge, responds in a particular way, one that has the quality of the heroic. This does not, however, make them a different or special kind of person, nor does it mean that they had a special destiny. Rather, they have responded to a calling. And moreover, in this kind of narrative, the emphasis is not upon the elevated or grand, nor is it upon the preservation and saving of high institutions. Instead, it's on the mundane. Above all, the domestic, the life and circumstances of ordinary people and the virtues they reflect. That's what the hero defends and acts for. The narrative here is different, not epic, but domestic. And we see this in the form of the heroic in many narratives, particularly fictional ones written in the modern world. 
It's, for example, one of the themes of George Eliot Middlemarch, or George Eliot's Middlemarch, captured very powerfully in the closing sentence of that work. Another now classic exposition is in J.R.R. Tolkien's Lord of the Rings. In that work, Tolkien, who was, of course, a professional scholar of the mythical, gave Aragorn all the features of the hero that are described earlier. The narrative of Aragorn's life in the book conforms very closely to the traditional heroic epic. However, it is, of course, not the central narrative of the work, but a subordinate one. In fact, we don't find key details in the main part. We have to get them from an appendix. One of the central messages of the work is the limitations of the conventionally epic and heroic. The main story is how that of how an ordinary person is presented with a challenge and in rising to it achieves the quality of the heroic. In addition, the ultimate opposition in the work is not between the kingly and the elevated world of the uh, Numenorians and elves on one side and the Dark Lord on the other. Rather, it's between the world of Sauron, an impious attempt to remake the world, and the cozy and above all domestic world of the Shire. That's why the book finishes not with the fall of Sauron and the return of the king, but with Sam Gamgee returning to his home where his wife puts his baby girl in his lap and he says with a great sigh, well, I'm back. It's the domestic and ordinary that produces heroism and is saved by it. What an interesting take from Stephen Davies. I'll post this in the show notes. Now, I'm going to share just a brief little example of another kind of heroism. Yesterday, I, uh, I got word that uh, a friend of mine, um, her and her husband lost their little boy. I think he was about three months old. He was born with a genetic defect. I think it's called trisomy 18. It's a chromosomal disorder. Kids who are born with this are not expected to live beyond just a few weeks. He made it for three months and was actually improving, defying the odds. Yesterday, he spit up, he choked on it, and they were not able to save him. It was heart-wrenching, to say the least. But what makes this heroic to me is his parents, from the time this little boy Trevor was born, have shared his story, have shared his image, have shared him via social media. And I look at the responses of the people who, you know, were offering sympathy and encouragement, prayers and support to this family. And I think that little, tiny, innocent life touched and affected more people than I think anybody would believe if they hadn't seen it for themselves. Well, I'm here to tell you, I saw it for myself. I felt it for myself. And I think that uh, that little life, brief as it may have been, impacted people for the better in ways that we're, we're only beginning to recognize. So my point here is don't discount the heroic. It's not always something that makes headline news. Timely, credible, thoughtful discussion. This is the Loving Liberty Radio Network.